Action series of podcasts is proudly supported by Arc Maths. That's Arc with a C. Now, over the course of these nine episodes, you'll be hearing about cutting edge research and its application to the classroom. And that is exactly what Arc Maths is all about. The ArcMaths app makes use of research into retrieval, testing, spacing and interleaving to design a personalised practice programme for each of your students that stops them forgetting the things they once knew. It strengthens their recall of core math skills and knowledge and keeps students systematically practising previous topics so you can teach new ones. There's no teaching element to it, it's just designed to support your teaching through regular recapping. On top of this, there is a brilliant handwriting recognition tool that can even cope with my dodgy scribbles and you can annotate the pictures and write on the working out screen. Unsurprisingly, the app has been shortlisted for Educational App of the Year at the 2021 BET Awards. Teachers can have a go with the ArcMaths app for free if they get in contact and mention the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. It's currently available for iPads, but phone and other tablet versions will be available from September. So just drop them an email at hello at arceducation.co.uk or contact them via the website. And there's links to both of those things in the show notes. And remember, that's Arc with a C, not a K. So... Welcome to Season 2 of my Research in Action mini-series, where I interview researchers from Loughborough University's Centre for Mathematical Cognition about their chosen areas of interest and the implications for teachers in the classroom. And I try my very best not to come across completely out of my depth. Episode 8 features Ian Jones. Ian is a reader in the Mathematics Education Centre at Loughborough University and a Fellow of the Higher Education Academy. Prior to being a reader, Ian was a senior research fellow funded by a Royal Society Shuttleworth Education Research Fellowship. Ian lectures mathematics and research mathematics education and assessment. He obtained his PhD in mathematics education at the University of Warwick and worked as a research fellow at the University of Nottingham before moving to Loughborough University as a senior research fellow funded by the Royal Society. Prior to this, Ian worked as a research assistant on many projects at several universities and perhaps most interestingly of all for our audience, was a school teacher for 10 years. Now, Ian is an expert on the equal sign and algebraic thinking and we touch upon those at the end of this conversation. But the main focus is on comparative judgment. Ian has developed the technique of comparative judgment for maths assessments, which is now used by Ofqual, and is also involved with No More Marking, which is headed up um, by a former podcast guest and friend of the show, Daisy Christodoulou. Now, as we will discover in this conversation, Ian is an expert on all things assessment and feedback and standards and validity in examinations. And I'll tell you what, there are plenty of takeaways for how we might assess our students' mathematical understanding beyond summative tests. So without further ado, let's get cracking. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Ian, we start the show as we always do with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? 
Well, I've decided I'm going to go with the number, if it is a number, 1984. <laughs> uh, the reason for that being it's my favourite book, a book I discovered when I was 15 and that I found uh, very enlightening at the time. And it's a book that does contain a little bit of mathematics, I guess. Um, famously, that freedom is the freedom to say that two and two make four. Something that seems quite relevant nowadays in the world of uh, uh, alternative facts and post-truth, let's say. So, uh, yeah, a nice reminder from Orwell that two and two do make four. <laughs> That's good. I don't think we've ever had kind of a year or a book title as a, as a favourite number. That's a good little twist on that, Ian. I like that. Very good. Um, question number two, then. What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? I remember early on in A-level maths, when we were first introduced to differentiation from first principles, being amazed by this. And I just had this feeling in the lesson that this was the most powerful idea I'd ever come across. Wow. Um, I didn't know why, I didn't quite understand why, but I just thought, oh, aren't, aren't we humans very clever? And I think there was something to do about the idea of limits, the idea of taking this thought experiment and from it being able to produce um, hard results. Um, to make strong predictions or, or model the physical world. So I really remember being quite blown away by that. If I remember rightly, the teacher um, started off with one of Zeno's paradoxes, and that really sort of caught me. I think he did it in quite a humorous way. If he shot a gun at one of the students at the back <laughs> of the classroom, would that student ever get shot? And uh, the answer was no. Um, and yeah, I was really quite taken by that. I'm afraid for your listeners, I didn't do a maths degree, I did a physics degree. And I think that A-level maths lesson was a big part in leading me to want to study physics rather than maths, wanting to model the world with mathematics. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's amazing. Those those memorable experiences that stick in your mind and yeah, can, can be yeah. career defining. That's, that's a great answer. And final speed dating question, uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in academic research and education in general? The older I get, the more I suspect that perhaps those philosophers and spiritual leaders throughout the ages and psychologists today have a point that really life is perhaps about taking a step back, smelling the roses, focusing on the important things in life. And like a lot of people nowadays, I've jumped on the meditation and yoga bandwagon. And I suspect I only just do enough in order to realise, you know, how far I am from being the person who smells the roses and identifies <laughs> what I'm putting life. So I like to think if I, if I had my time again, or maybe one day I will, if I had the courage and the strength of character, I'd become a Zen monk up in a mountain or something like that. Wow, jeez. Um, yeah. So well, what are you, I'm, I'm interested in, I, again, I, I, I suspect I'm similar. I'm kind of dabbling a bit of kind of mindfulness and so on. What, 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 do, what do you do? Is it just kind of a daily meditation or do you have anything else uh, that you, you do regularly? Daily is the aspiration. Um, I think it's probably every other day in yeah. practice. I happen to live opposite a, a Buddhist center. So I, I go there uh, to meditate when, uh, when, when I find myself able to. And I've just, yoga is just one of my lockdown uh, uh, yes. discoveries. And that's doing me a world of good. The other thing I've got into uh, during lockdown is cold showers, which oh. um, I do recommend, say, uh, for, you know, you're in the moment when you're having a cold shower. Yes, <laughs> I bet you do. Jeez, well, fantastic. Okay, well, Ian, what we'll move on to now then, if it's all right, is your career. Can you tell us where it all started for you and how you got to where you are today? Well, yeah, as mentioned, I'm afraid I am a fraud. I did, I did physics um, for my degree. 
And by the end of my physics degree, I think like a lot of students, certainly a lot of the students that, that I teach, I was a bit, I was a bit fed up um, of equations and abstraction, mm. if I dare say. So I decided to become a school teacher. However, I dropped out of my PGCE. I did a secondary PGCE in physics. And in some ways it was going well, but I was just too young. I just had no chance in front of these kids, no discipline. But the two week primary placement made a big impression on me. So when I say dropped out, what I did was transfer to a primary PGCE, but for various reasons, I had to wait a year and, and reapply to do that. So I became a primary school teacher for a while and enjoyed that very much and used it to travel the world a bit, as a lot of teachers do. Um, after a few years, I started to get a little a little bored. I, I never really fancied going into uh, management and hats off to those that cope with management positions in schools. Um, so I thought I'd have a change. Um, so I, I, I embraced my inner nerd and decided to do a master's in IT, which by coincidence was at Loughborough University where I am now. And at the end of that master's in IT, I got like the best grades on the module, but I still couldn't switch a computer on. And that's when I thought, <laughs> I know, I'll become an academic. Um, and so through keeping an eye on jobs.ac.uk, I picked up a little bit of research project work. Uh, someone called Dave Pratt, who was at the University of Warwick at the time, employed me on a few projects. And by hook or crook, I ended up doing a PhD. And um, that was in the area of students understanding of the equal sign, which is something I'm Sure, we'll mention today, but perhaps mm. not the main area I'm, I'm going to talk about. Following that, I had some uh, postdoc work. I ended up being working with the Shell Centre a, a little, and we'll certainly come back to that because that's what led to my interest in comparative judgment, which I'm hoping to talk to you about today. So, getting involved in assessments um, of, of mathematics. Um, and then I went on to get a lectureship at uh, Loughborough University, which is where I am now. Fantastic. Superb. Um, and just before we dive into your area of uh, research, Ian, I always ask people at this point to pick out a favourite failure, mm. something that didn't go according to plan in your professional life, but you learned from the experience. Yeah, no, th this is a great question. And of course, no, no research goes as planned. We, we write our reports in this sort of very linear, logical, I did this and therefore I thought this type way. And, and the story <laughs> is always a, a bit of a mess um, under the bonnet. In my early days of, of comparative judgment, I invested perhaps a couple of years of research trying to make it more efficient. I mean, as we'll get into, the essence of it is, is, is people, it might be teachers, but teachers say, look at a piece of work on screen and make a judgment. And we have to get them to make a lot of judgments quite quickly. And I was really interested, as, as everybody was who was in to comparative judgment in those days was trying to do, was to make it more efficient. There was this feeling that you needed too many judgments to get reliable outcomes. How can we reduce it through various mechanisms, such as algorithms under the bonnet, but also how we present pieces of work, how we sequence them, do we put contrasting bits of work together or similar bits of work together, do we train people to be more efficient, and so on and so forth. And no matter what I hit it with, I couldn't make comparative judgment more efficient. No matter what I did, you got the same result with the same with the same number of judgments. And I couldn't get it reduced. And at the time, I was quite frustrated by this because well, if we can't get it more efficient, we can't get it off the ground. But I woke up after a couple of years one day and just thought, hold on a minute, this comparative judgment stuff's really robust. No matter what I hit it with, 
I'm getting the same results every time. So what started off as a frustration and perhaps it wasn't the most efficient use of time to, to discover this turned out to be a strength. So at least from then I had a base to think that it's um, a, a base to be reassured that it's a fairly robust system. But yeah, it, it's not always the most efficient process uh, doing research, getting from A to B. You don't always take the most direct route. That's interesting. That I often, I mean, again, I, I I can relate in a certain sense that often I'll spend days working on something and think, what on earth have I achieved there? But it's only later on that you realize that perhaps that time was needed for you to, to, to get to the point where you realize either you can't solve it that way or you've laid the groundwork to think of another solution and so on. It's It's difficult, isn't it? In other jobs, I get the sense that you can see the fruits of your labor all the time, but sometimes when you're thinking about things and researching, it takes a little bit longer for you to, to perhaps realize what you've achieved, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah tricky one. Tricky one. <laughs> right, well, when um, Colin sent through um, the list of the kind of bios and area of interest of the guests I'll be speaking to on this series, um, I really kind of honed in on, on yours, Ian, when I saw comparative judgment. So just a bit of background for the listeners. Um, I first became aware of comparative judgment via the work of Daisy Christodoulou um, and Daisy came on the podcast, but we, we talked for about two hours, but just about its use in English. And it was only really at the end of the podcast, I said, any joy with this in maths? Is there any relevance? And you just, just spoke briefly about it, but of course her, her area of expertise and interest mm. is within, within, within English. And I bit went on one of Daisy's comparative judgment workshops and again, it was very much looking at uh, judging uh, strengths of pieces of writing and so on and so forth. And like you, I, I was blown away by the potential power of this, the robustness of this that kept coming through. But I could never see the way that this could be used in, in mathematics. And I still can't, Ian. So I'm really looking forward to this. So I guess the place to start is, when did you first become aware of comparative judgment as a means of assessment or a means of comparing things? Yeah, in a, in a meeting with Dylan William is the short answer to this. So I, I mentioned I was at the Shell Centre at Nottingham, who have a, a, a long-standing reputation for developing rich tasks for formative and for summative assessments. And when I was at the Shell Centre, I got commissioned by the Royal Society to, uh, perhaps I should have included this as a, a failure, to improve the quality of GCSE um, examination. Uh, wow. And what was true then, I think, is, is perhaps slightly less true now, but, but fundamentally true. The problem that the Royal Society and many people saw at the time was that GCSE exams were not fit for purpose for, for various reasons. And, you know, sociological reasons such as uh, holding schools to account on the basis of results. But actually, this was talking about the content, the mathematical content and the questions not being fit for purpose. And the basic feeling was that there was too many piecemeal questions and not enough sustained reasoning or problem solving or longer questions. Uh, an analogy I sometimes use is imagine English was assessed only using grammar and spelling tests. You'd have nice, objective, reliable results, but where's the performance? Where's the essay? And, and that's, that's what I wanted to do in maths, really, bring in the performance, bring in the essay. And on account of this, I ended up hanging around uh, some of the awarding bodies who were kind enough to let me in, come in and sit in on some of their meetings where examiners have their um, exams peer reviewed and checked and improved. And I discovered that really a lot of the fragmentation, a lot of the reducing questions into isolated 
little questions worth one, two, three marks only, came, came about from, from several factors. But the one that really caught my attention was the need to get these exams marked quickly by a lot of people. So these exams get, depends how many people, how many students have sat the exam, but they get sent out to maybe a few thousand mm -hmm. teachers to be marked very quickly. And we know our normal distribution, any group of 3,000 people, there's going to be a, a normal curve of, of competence and of, you know, taking the job seriously. So how do you get these things marked reliably? I'm going to use the word reliable quite a lot. And when I say reliable, I mean a particular form of it, which is getting the same mark no matter who marks your exam. Because what we don't want is for my grade to be a function of whoever happened to do the marking. So one way to cope with having lots of people mark exams quickly of various qualities is to make the marking as objective as you can. And the way to make marking objective, well, at the extreme is um, multiple choice, which is perfectly objective in the sense that a, a machine can mark it. So you'll always get exactly the same outcomes through to these sorts of short, short type questions. Now, you might be thinking, well, they have the same problem with S with English and they have essays, so we, we could come to that. But for the case of math, this was a barrier. We can't have longer questions because we couldn't have it marked reliably. Yep. So a genuine and kind concern. We want kids' grades to be a factor of the work they have done. Um, so, so that was the problem. That's what I was seeing at the exam boards. And meanwhile, I thought, well, I've got this commission to uh, improve the quality of assessment. Let me see if I can get a meeting with Dylan Williams. So he was kind enough to give me uh, 15 minutes, I think it was, um, for, for the new researcher at the time. And he said to me, the most exciting thing in assessment at the moment is happening at Goldsmiths uh, under a project run by someone called Richard Kimball. And there was someone else in assessment research called Alistair Pollitt, who was there as well. And that's where I first came across comparative judgment. And what they and what were you, doing... Sorry to interrupt you. What yeah. year are we talking here, just for context? Oh, now you're testing me. Around 2009, 2010. So 10 or 11 years ago. So what Goldsmiths were interested in was design and technology education. It happened to be GCSE. And, um, well, 10 or 11 years ago, technology was coming on and in design technology, people were starting to have their pupils uh, film and record their projects, that piece of technology they were making using videos and making an e-portfolio. But how on earth do you mark an e-portfolio? Mm. Or more importantly, how do you mark it reliably, yes. especially if you're going to distribute them to a whole bank of markers? they were applying comparative judgment that was the first time to my knowledge that comparative judgment has been applied directly to the assessment of students it's actually been used for a while in psychology labs and for standardizing exams and stuff but actually using it to assess students directly and that's where i first saw it and that's when i thought yes this is what we need in maths in order to have our performance pieces, in order to have a, a maths assessment that might just be something like discuss this concept and then an open, you know, a genuinely open task. So that's where it first caught my eye and I first got um, excited about it. Would it be possible, and just to, for, for people who aren't familiar, perhaps with the term or the kind of intricacies of comparative judgment, can you just give a very quick overview of, of what's involved in, in a comparative judgment kind of exercise? Yeah, sure. So what we it, so it's a way of assessing work. It's a way of getting a mark or a grade to students' work. And what we do is we don't have any rubrics, no mark scheme. We throw out our red pens. 
we don't do lots of ticks and aggregate them. Instead, we make holistic judgments. So the idea is that we, as, as experts, know what good mathematical thinking or good problem solving or conceptual understanding looks like when we see it. So all we need to do is have a look at a piece of students' work and use our own professional judgments to decide how good it is, uh, decide what we think of it. The problem we're using professional judgment, of course, is that it's subjective mm. and all sorts of things are, are subjective. So I'm sure you've come across these examples before, but one way we often introduce comparative judgment is to say, if I was to ask you, uh, if we were in the same room, a few of us, and I was to ask what's the temperature, we'd all be all over the place. We'd have different guesses. If I then said, let's all go outside. Now, is it warmer outside or warmer inside? Suddenly we'd all agree. So what we do with comparative judgment is not present one piece of work, we present two pieces of work and we ask simply, which is better? We might need a, to qualify that a little, it might be in terms of conceptual understanding or some other aspect we're interested in, but simply, which is better? And we're harnessing the idea that as professionals, um, we do know what good mathematical thinking looks like. And the, the, I mean, the claim underlying comparative judgment, drawing on that temperature, temperature example, is simply that as human beings, we're all over the place. We are not consistent at making absolute judgments, but we are very consistent at making comparative judgments, hence the name. So when we compare one thing with another, suddenly we're very consistent with ourselves, whether we do it today or tomorrow, and with each other. Now, assuming our, our judges know their maths, are sober, are taking it seriously, and, and, and all these other things. So that's the basic idea of it. Now, um, if we could all guess the temperature in the room, then we'd have the temperature. When we say, is it warmer inside or outside, we've only got one literally bit of information there, and this relates to the efficiency earlier. So we actually have to do many comparative judgments, get many, uh, get many decisions, ideally from a group of assessors, this idea of collective expertise or tapping into the, the, the community's expertise in order to do it. And then we can use some modeling in order to assign a score to every piece of work. I'm not into sports, so I'm always very wary with these <laughs> metaphors, but I understand in football, teams play each other and we end up with a league, we end up with a ranking. So it's a little like that, but there's some more sophistication in how we go about generating the scores. Um, so that, that, they just that's ask, the essence of it. Yeah, yeah. If um, that's a, a brilliant overview of that, Ian. If I ask you just the kind of two questions that always kind of run through my mind, just generally about comparative judgment, before we get into the how it can be related to mathematics. So the first is: is there any kind of, I guess, either consensus or kind of absolute um, kind of decision on this about how many people need to make that comparison for it to be reliable? To, to stop the kind of error coming into play where one person looks at a piece of work and for whatever reason judges it worse than the other one. In fact, it's, it's the other way around. How, how many people need to make those kind of comparisons to, to get reliable results? Yeah, it's easier to answer this question in terms of how many judgments do you need? Okay. I mean, whether you get a lot of people or a few people to do them, is a, a little bit by the by in, in, okay. in the evidence that I, I've generated. So there's, it's a how long is a piece of string, but the rough rule here is the number of pieces you've worked, you've got multiply by 10, and that's how many judgments you need. Ah, that's, I've never heard that before. So just say that to me one more time. The number of pieces of work you've got multiplied by 10 is the number of judgments you need. 
Yes, that's right. Now, there's there's exceptions. If I'm using a task I've used many times, tried and tested with a group of judges I know well, then it can be multiplied by five will be enough. Often at the Mass Education, at the Centre for Mass Cognition and the Mass Education Centre at Loughborough, we are using it in new areas. Then you often need to multiply by 20, multiply by 30 when you're in an exploratory. But multiply by 10 is, is my rule of thumb answer um, for that question. That's fantastic. I've actually thought, actually, there's three things I needed to ask you about. So that's one of them ticked off. Um, the next one is, now, you, you said at the start that you feel a bit of a fraud because you did a physics degree. Um, I, I admit fairly freely, but I've got to be a bit careful. I did an economics degree, so I feel a bit of a fraud hosting a, a maths podcast. But one of the things that in economics I really enjoy is this notion of wisdom of the crowds, this notion that if you get enough independent people together, and the classic example for this is, um, estimating the amount of jelly beans in a jar, that if you yeah. get enough people together and they crucially make independent estimates and you average those independent estimates, you get pretty close to, to, the, to the accurate. Does Is it fair to say, would comparative judgment be more reliable than having a big group of people independently mark something, you know, an essay out of 20 or a maths uh, investigation out of 20 or whatever, is comparative judgment more reliable than that? Or is it just the fact that it's more efficient, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think often in the context that we're using it in uh, maths education, it's probably an efficiency thing rather than um, being more accurate. But I think the difference with how I'm using comparative judgment and wisdom of crowds is that it is experts that we're asking to do this. Yes. So it is. It, it is people who know their stuff um, rather than that sort of throwing it out to, to all types of people. But it is um, an efficiency thing because one thing I've spent a lot of time in the last 10 years trying to do is establish the validity of comparative judgment. And let's just say validity is assessing what you want to assess for, for the sake of uh, get, opening that can of worms. <laughs> It's easy to measure reliability. You just do something twice, check you get the same result. Validity is, is much harder to measure. And one way I do it is to use very inefficient traditional methods of marking in order to get a yardstick to compare the comparative judgment outcomes with. So I actually exploit the fact that, yeah, we can get there by other methods uh, than comparative judgment. But there are contexts in which I've had research findings where people have totally failed when I've had them assessing in, a, in an absolute context. But um, it's been a bit of a sideline in my research. For example, I had a, a peer assessment, uh, did a peer assessment study with, with Chris Whedon uh, from, from Normal Marking, a, a colleague of Daisy, of course, uh, where we had, oh, it's a while ago now, Key Stage 3 students, I think, comparatively judge one another's work but then also just make absolute judgments about one another's work. And they were all over the place. So, you know, with that, well, they were fine with the comparative judgment, sorry, ah. but they were all over the place with the absolute marking. Um, so I, I think perhaps that lack of expertise there um, is what affects it. I mean, I guess another, when, when I say expertise, we have to qualify that even a mm. little bit. The way I think about it is that you've got the, the difficulty, as it were, of the maths being assessed. And then you've got the mathematical level of the expert. So a lot of my research, I often employ PhD students um, in order to do the judging for me. In the early days, I employed math teachers, but math teachers 
have a little money in their pockets, but they don't have any other any time, where PhD <laughs> students are, are the other way around, so they're more available. <laughs> so you've got PhD students, they're fresh off their maths degrees, they're doing a PhD in maths, their, their maths level is, is off the scale, and they're assessing perhaps some key stage two, key stage three math. So they're just so in their comfort zone there, there's no problem at all. But once we start doing peer assessment, that gap closes, or I've had a PhD student recently who's looked at assessing university proof using comparative judgment. And again, there, the, the expertise level between the content of the maths and the judges narrows a little bit. So perhaps the wisdom of crowds thing kicks in a little more there and we achieve things that would be hard to do without comparative judgment. That's interesting. That's interesting. And the last, my last question, again, before we dive into the math specific stuff, and forgive me if this is something you want to tackle later, or it's just kind of too big a question, is the one thing I've never quite got my head around is how you actually get scores or levels or grades from this. I can completely see how comparative judgment would lead to a ranking. But then how does that equate? Is it just as simple as the top 10, you decide in advance, the top 10% are going to get this grade, the next 10% are going to get the other? Or is there something a bit more sophisticated going on to turn that ranking into some kind of level or score? Yeah, this is a very commonly asked uh, question. I, I guess it's related to, is it inherently norm referenced or can we criterion reference um, the grade? So just before I, I answer that substantive question, it's worth saying that what we get out of comparative judgment, people often say a rank order, and I used to, but I've learned to stop saying this because I think it undersells it. We do get a score for each student out of comparative judgment, and they are scaled scores. So, so it isn't just a rank order, but, but for some reason, uh, us researchers don't help ourselves by often talking about a rank order. So well, what do you mean by that? Can you just dig into that a bit more, Ian? Because again, I've always just assumed it was a, a ranking. Where, where does the score bit come from? Yeah, well, that, that the score is modelled from the judgment decisions um, I mentioned earlier. And, and, you know, if you want to get a bit nerdy about it, typically these um, uh, statistics package will output a mean of zero and a standard deviation of about 2.5. So you get these right, quite ugly scores that you wouldn't in a million years tell a student <laughs> you've got minus 1.5, whatever it is. So yeah, it, it, it models them to, to um, give an actual score. I mean, if you imagine the simple algorithm where you just say, um, had the number of, of wins, the number of times that piece of work got chosen divided by the total number of um, pairings it had, you'd get a score there as well. Yes. So it, it's just generated score, but doing it in, a, in a, a more sophisticated way. So you end up with your scores and they're these, these rather hideous uh, mean zero standard deviation 2.5. So then you, you might transform them to be on a scale from say zero to a hundred. Yeah. So be careful with that though, because it looks like it's a percentage and it's not mm. percentage content coverage like it might be. But then how you apply grades is, uh, this comes on to a really interesting thing about comparative judgment. Um, but applying grades is a dark art. You've got <laughs> scores. Now, however, however they were generated through marking, through comparative judgment, through reading star signs and tea leaves, whatever it is, you've got a set of scores and you could either norm reference them, you could chop them up into 10%, or you can criterion reference them. You can identify the points which, using whatever mechanism, you think that's grade A slash grade B. Oh, I'm out of date, I'm sorry, number grades nowadays for GCSE. <laughs> but that could be a grade A, grade B. And there's various ways that you can insert the, the joints, as it were, the places where you want the grade boundary um, to be. 
Um, and I, I, I mean, I could go into more detail if, if you think the listeners would be interested in that. But oh, I, yeah, I think... yeah. More, more the better here, definitely. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll do that then. So, I mean, there's different ways we've done that. When I use it in my university teaching, uh, which I do use comparative judgment, I do try not to be one of those education researchers who, who doesn't practice what they preach. Um, I've been doing that on a module for a few years now where I've got some... Um, exemplars of what I consider to be the cut grade. It, it's a, a weird little module where I give them a score between zero and five for their comparative judgment work. So I've got my four slash five um, exemplar. Well, actually, I've got yep. two or three of them just to check they all come up in the same place. So I, I feed these into the judging pot along <sighs> with this year's. And the judges, who, who actually are the students, and a couple of lectures, it's peer assessed. So they don't know which which, and then you can yes. look where they come out in the rank order. I don't then mindlessly just call that the cut grade. You always want to have a look a little bit to the side and often yes. you end up shunting it, <laughs> more professional judgment coming in. <laughs> Another way I've done it, um, I wouldn't do this with peer assessment, but when experts are judging, is to just write A slash B on a bit of paper. And, and most of the time you're judging two pieces of work, just now and again, you get A slash B, so then you are having to make a bit of an absolute judgment, ah. suddenly you decide if it's above or below. Another thing I've done is, or done with other lecturers who haven't got exemplars, is you can actually look at the rank order, sorry, I've said rank order myself, at the scores you get, put them in order, and you get natural breaks. So very typically, you'll see the five or six students that have really like done a lot better than the others. So you could start off with those natural breaks and say, well, look, this looks like a genuine empirical division between the students. Let's have a, a look at the scripts around there and decide where to do the, the where to put the grade boundary. So, so there's these sort of various ways you, you can um, put them in. None of them entirely satisfactory, but... Um, but I, th I think that's the case with any scores you get. But yeah, I think my point is once you've got a, a set of scores, however they were generated, whether you norm reference or criterion reference the grades can be done. Got it. That makes perfect sense. And, and just to be clear here, uh, Ian, at this point, as far as my understanding is, it's not just the case that comparative judgment is more efficient than absolute marking or whatever we want to call it. Is it fair to say it, it is more reliable? Like if if you... If, if you've got experts who are trying to absolute mark, they disagree, don't they? And yeah. whereas comparative judgment, is it fair to say, it kind of irons out those disagreements? Yeah, I think that's right. That That's a fair way of putting it. So, yeah, it, it's hard not to get reliable results of comparative judgment so long as you've got enough judgments coming in. As I mentioned earlier, so long as you judges have got the relative expertise, are taking it seriously uh, and all that sort of thing. Whereas with traditional marking, yeah, you, you can hammer it into being reliable. You can throw enough money at it. You can take a sample. You can develop your mark scheme. You can get someone to do some sample marking. You can have a meeting and refund. And that's what we do when we're researching in order to get that yardstick. So you can get there, but you kind of can't help but get there with comparative judgment. So there's certainly some efficiency in the mix, and that is a, a, a big selling point in certain contexts. But yeah, it is also about being able to produce reliable scores. Um, that's interesting right well this is this is kind of the point i was at with when i was speaking to daisy i was sold on the dream of this i thought this is brilliant but then i thought maths how on earth is this this working for maths so can you just tell me ian what are the types of maths problems or maths challenges that comparative judgment lends itself best to 
So I started off being very interested in problem solving when I was first into comparative judgment. So an early study uh, with Malcolm Swan, we took some of the shell tasks. They were uh, marketed under the Boland scheme. I don't know if you remember Boland. Yes. So we took some of the Boland tasks and we, we had them marked. We went to some trouble to get them marked and then we had them judged and we found that those lend themselves to being comparatively judged quite well. So these sort of well, I'm not sure they're exactly open middle. Sometimes people call these sorts of tasks or where there's two or three different um, avenues, two or three different ways to do it. So it particularly lends itself well to those sorts of problems. However, I also just threw some traditional GCSE papers in at the same time. And I found that that equally comparative judgment was able to um, assess them. So I guess it's not that it's any better at problem solving than it is at traditional type exams. It's just, I guess, why would you want to assess traditional exams with comparative judgment? They're, they're quite objective, so marking works quite well. So it was just kind of a validity check. But yeah, th these sorts of problem solving questions work quite well. My interest moved on a little bit uh, from problem solving items of, of the sort of Nottingham Shell Centre Malcolm Swan type. And the reason being is, although they're wonderful questions, and, and I think I'm sure a lot of you uh, listeners like to use them, uh, they are they are open middle rather than open ended. There's often only two or three actual plausible ways that you, that, you know, there is a wrong and rightness mm. about them. And I started moving into being interested in assessing conceptual understanding, which is much more of an uncracked nut um, in a way in maths education. And it got started by some happenstance. There was a teacher I used to work with and I was telling her about this comparative judgment thing I was getting into. And she said, oh, well, I've got this task you might want for it. She says, I, I never mark it, I never bother, but when I get uh, my New Year sevens, I always put some uh, fractions on the board and I say, put them into order and explain how you've done it. And she said, this is, it's, it's all re always really insightful, this task. I don't mark it, I just read it, but it really gives me some insight. And she said, it, it, it strikes me as the sort of thing that would be very useful for comparative judgment. So I thought, great, um, and these tasks were ready to go. So she gave me a sample of these tasks and we had them judged. And yeah, we found that, well, as it always does, comparative judgment produced some reliable outcomes for it. And what was interesting about that task was, first of all, it was conceptual rather than problem solving. I mean, there really isn't any right answer to explain how you, you went about this. But also it did contain a procedural or a right wrong part. You've got to put the fractions mm. in order and that can be marked as, as right or wrong. And that enabled us to um, double assess those tasks. We were able to, to assign a mark based on how correctly the students put the fractions in order. So that was an objective, if you like, mark. And then we had the comparative judgment mark, uh, comparative judgment scores. And what was really interesting about that was that there was not a relationship between the comparative judgment score and the objective score for putting the fractions in order. So that, that made us think that the judges really were focusing on the explanation. We're really trying to access what the students had said they'd done rather than just looking at yes. whether they'd got the fractions in order. So that was very reassuring that perhaps we were onto something here. I mean, the whole point was to try and get comparative judgment to go to places that traditional marking can't reach, um, at least in, in practical terms. So from this, um, I ended up working with uh, colleagues at 
um, at Loughborough, Matthew and Camilla, who, who've been on your show, I know, um, recently. And we started pushing this a bit further and thinking it's really difficult, to, it's really difficult to define conceptual understanding. And if you can't define something, you can't measure it. So comparative judgment kind of gave us this, this sort of shortcut to being able to do that. So we started presenting students with questions such as, what is an equation? Explain everything you know about <laughs> equations. That's the first thing that um, my uh, students at university get uh, when I meet them. That's a real eye wow. opener as well. And from there, you can, you know, it, you can have any question you want. Concept text explain is, is the basic format that I'm very interested in in using um, at the moment. So, from primary right down from well, it was New Zealand, but the equivalent of Year One through now to university students, you know, explain what proof is, explain everything you understand by proof, down into primary school with it, explain arithmetic and everything you you um, understand from arithmetic. Now, I've, I've done variants on that as well. I have uh, some engineering students I teach probability to, so I make them write out a list of sentences from certain through to impossible, and they judge that themselves. Uh, and one thing I like about comparative judgment is once you sort of get your head into it, there's as many tasks and questions and ways you can use it as, as there are people who come across it, if you like. But I think the trick is to think of those things you wouldn't really know how to go about marking what can comparative judgment enable what what can we start doing with it that hasn't been possible with traditional marking um is is i think the main way that that i like to approach it and this focus on conceptual understanding something that's really got me interested in it Wow. Right. Okay. So a couple of questions spring to mind here. I just want to reverse a little bit, if it's okay, and just go yeah. back to um, something you were saying about the GCSE papers. Now, I've um, I've been lucky enough to mark GCSE papers, as I know many listeners have, and I always advise uh, maths teachers just to sign up, not for the money, because there's hardly any money in it, but just to sign up for the experience of marking GCSE papers, because it, it teaches you so much about what what gains marks, what loses marks. And it's so informative for your own kind of teaching for exam techniques to students. But whilst the kind of one mark and two mark questions are pretty easy to mark at GCSE, as soon as you get to like a three mark or a four mark, it's a flipping nightmare because mm -hmm. the mark scheme's branching off in all different directions. And if a child makes a mistake on line one, you just, you, you've had enough because then you've got to look for follow through yeah. marks and work it all out yourself and so on. So do you think comparative judgment has a role to play in those kind of three, four, five mark, tricky to mark GCSE questions or, or not really? Is that really where you need to look for where the marks technically need to be awarded and so on? Yeah, well, I'm going to caveat my answer by just clarifying that I haven't explicitly researched that um, looking at such three and four mark questions. And so my, I guess my short answer would be, well, if we were to run a study where we were to present these to uh, teachers and ask them, would you expect that to show a correlation with marks? My assumption is that it would, um, that that would be a way of assessing those sorts of uh, three, four mark questions. And in fact, it was something we were interested in trying to encourage uh, Ofqual and the exam boards um, to, to investigate which which got a little bit lost but yeah i i imagine it would i mean you've got to be a bit careful with this sort of thing because if you're saying well well i'd have to sit and work out what what the kids done here and work through their own calculations to get it then 
I mean, hopefully you'd still want to do that if you were comparatively judging in mm. order to give them a, a, a fair chance. I mean, one thing we have noticed with comparative judgment is that things that aren't mathematics do come into it. I mean, if I'm giving a, a short prompt at the top, and asking for a page to be filled if if the kid's writing so messy you can't read it they're not going to yes. come out well in the in the comparative judgment interesting outcome. i also you, you also can break comparative judgments you know there's no <laughs> no silver bullets in education and whilst it's a very very good system there is an element of very good system in certain contexts there is an element of assuming people playing the game so there's been a couple of times where I've put in a plausible answer that's actually nonsense and got something like my niece who was uh, 15 or something at the time to, to write it out for me, stuck it in with a pot and you hope this thing is going to sink because officially yes. it looks good, but it's absolute nonsense. Yes. And where well, it hovers around the bottom third, but it doesn't necessarily sink mm. like a stone like you'd hoped so, so, you know, there is no getting around scratching your head and looking at what the kid's done and, and making sure you're making, a, a, you know, the best judgment you can with it. Um, another example we've had recently from uh, uh, where primary teachers have been uh, doing some comparative judgments. And of course, and as a primary teacher myself, famously primary teachers often don't have a STEM background and lack confidence in math. And this was a question, it was, oh, I can't remember the exact wording, a, a colleague of mine, Jodie Hunter in New Zealand, who writes brilliant primary school questions for comparative judgment maths. But it was something along the lines of, um, of something to do with making a shape that has a maximum area. And so all these answers, there's various triangles, rectangles and squares. And there was this one answer that was just wonderful where the child had started off with uh, maybe it's a pentagon and then a hexagon and they'd, they'd almost got to a circle by the end and, and so it really was a very impressive answer and that bombed um and that was to do with the judges we were using this this issue of you know the the knowledge of the judges versus the the, the mass content so so i mean i think the short going back to your question i think short answer is yes my prediction is an empirical study would show that it does work but if you're talking about sometimes it's knotty and you've really got to scratch your head and get into it, there's no avoiding that, it seems to me. No, and I think, my, I mean, my experience is that those problems, particularly where you've got kids who write really messy yeah. or it's, um, it's, it's a plausible right answer, but it's, it's wrong, you're just as likely to make errors marking those with absolute than you would be yeah. comparison. Like as soon as I see scruffy work, I'm looking, I'm looking to lose a mark, if I'm honest, because I'm yeah. annoyed how long it's taking me That's and right. so on. So yeah, I would imagine those problems are just inherent to all kind mm. of assessment. That's interesting. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking was um, <laughs> when I first started teaching, this kind of shows my age a bit, coursework was still knocking around and that was the worst thing in the world mm. to mark. Maths coursework, flipping heck, that was yeah. a nightmare because you had the worst of all worlds. You had these really rich kind of, I guess, so-called open-ended problems, although to take your point, they were a bit more open middle. You were kind of edging towards one, one direction, but you had these terribly vague criteria that you were looking for to award, I think it was like three sets of marks out of eight or something. Yeah. And it was horrendous. And like, I didn't agree with myself, let alone agree with my colleague. And it was just yeah. endless hours of moderation. And I'm guessing comparative judgment could be quite successful in marking coursework reliably. Would that be, maths coursework, would that be your instinct there? as well yes it would i mean again i've not directly 
assess that but I, I think i've done studies where the thing where they've assessed work that looks a bit more like coursework yeah that is exactly the sort of thing that that screens for at least having a go with yes. with comparative judgment certainly yeah yeah, yeah these sort of holistic um longer longer tasks uh, it's definitely this sort of area well, just before I just ask you something more specific about um, conceptual understanding, I guess the kind of big question here is, well, why, why aren't exam boards using this? Well, why, why is it not like the go-to, particularly in English, why isn't it the go-to thing? And, and certainly mm. like edging towards mathematics to assess conceptual understanding, why, why isn't it, it, it like the biggest thing in assessment? Yeah, no, it's interesting. And, and it, it, I mean, to raise English, a lot of what I've said doesn't apply to English. They do send out essays. The exam boards do send out essays to be marked by thousands of teachers. And it's an incredibly subjective exercise. Uh, and I, I do mark essays in my education modules at university. And it's incredibly subjective. And one of the things I didn't understand when I first got into this is, is why is what's good for maths, you know, not acceptable for English? And interestingly, Ofqual do not publish reliability statistics for exams. <laughs> reliability in the sense we've been talking about, you know, with good reason. Ofqual do do their own research studies. You can find papers where they report from their own research reliabilities, and you can infer that's what it is. But, but the reliabilities really are quite poor. And I think there's a cultural thing there. I think in English, um, teachers have just come to accept that you know you can't that their subject has an inherent subjectivity whereas math teachers we are much more used to having some objectivity knowing that students results are fair in the sense that it doesn't matter who marks it so i think that cultural difference is um it's not an answer to your question but it's, it's something to note in terms of why don't the exam boards do this and why don't um off qual instruct them to or like this i i do know um that they'd like to and certainly off qual are very keen on seeing comparative judgment introduced it's it's the conservatism of change i think with these mm -hmm. national exams something i'm sympathetic to because exam results come out in august if they if you know, if there's grade inflation, there's outrage. If the grades are the same as last year, there's outrage. It doesn't matter what you do, there's there's going to be outrage. So it's a very difficult um, area to innovate in. In fact, I made a, a sort of an aside quip earlier about how my commissioning from the Royal Society perhaps could be because it's called another failure because my, you know, I was looking to how we can improve the validity of GCSE exams. And uh, whilst that led to comparative judgment and a, a lot of things I'm very proud of, I'm not sure it led to a great change in GCSE exams. And I quickly learnt when I started that research and started hanging around the awarding bodies to keep it arm's length because there's mm -hmm. no space to innovate. And the spaces I've started being able to innovate are at university, are in the New Zealand primary curriculum, are at key stage three, or with no more marking the services they offer. Um, it, it's just very difficult to affect change unless it comes in a top-down way like the shift to uh, numerical grades for a policy yes. reason or of course that, that you know I don't really want to get into the lockdown uh, assessment debacles but yeah it just seems to me it, it's very hard for it to change to anything comparative judgment or, or anything else there's also a lot of work to, I mean I, I'm not a policy person or a sociologist who understands the you know I don't research these sort of big socio-technical systems that, that is the exam boards and off qual but um it 
yeah, it, it does seem to me that if these changes are going to come about, we certainly don't want to go full bore to comparative judgment. So a lot of work needs to be done, perhaps by people with different expertise to me, into what would we throw to comparative judgment coursework and essay seems a good thing. As you can tell from my answer, I'm a bit less convinced by the three or four mark type questions. Yes. Although that might just be my own sort of desire to, to change maths assessment rather than do existing maths assessment with comparative <laughs> judgment. So I, I certainly think we should keep traditional marking and I'm, I'm sure we always will. It's tried and tested. So I guess there'd be a lot of work needed to decide exactly what we're going to use comparative judgment for and, and how we're going to go about that. You also get other challenges. I mean, I use comparative judgment, as I've mentioned. And of course, when they say, uh, how do I get a good mark? What's the mark scheme? What's a good answer like? It's, well, answering that question is possible uh, and I have ways to do it, but that is a, a different question as well. So how do you sell it to the public to say, oh, well, don't worry, some experts judged your work. Um, there's no comments, there's no mark scheme, but you know, we're sure we got the grade right. Yes. Now there are answers to that. Alistair Pollock, for example, says anyone who challenges their grade could ask for some further judgments to be made. And so I think those sorts of issues are, are all part of that, that conservatism um, that, that you do get from the exam boards and, and from Ofqual. It's interesting that as, as far as you were, are there any countries who do this on kind of a, a national level or, or a significant level? No, no. Uh, well, actually, um, the UK in English uh, through normal marking services and there's a, well, it's a large pilot study in um, New Zealand um, looking to assess primary mathematics using comparative judgment. But no is is the short answer. It's fascinating. It's, it really is fascinating. Um, Again, I'm kind of edging towards my questions on conceptual understanding, but I've just thought of one more. Um, if we've got maths departments or whoever listening to this who want to just come up with a task like you've said, like what is an equation or you know what is a fraction or, or just some way of assessing conceptual understanding, is the best way to get involved with comparative judgment just to use the free tool that's on no more marking? Is, is that better than just kind of printing out answers and kind of swapping them around and trying to put them in the ranks? I, I guess that's where it gets a bit complicated. You, you need a bit of smartness from the computer and the algorithm. Is that right? Yeah, well, you, you've sort of anticipated one of my big three uh, uh, websites, oh, sorry. <laughs> end, which will be go to no more marking and have a look. If yeah, I think at the maths department level, you're best having a go with the free um, no more marking tool and contact myself or uh, Pat Barnby, who works at no more marking. He's a, a maths education person as well. Uh, used to be uh, at Durham. And yeah, we'd be very, very happy to assist you. I mean, when you go to no more marking, they're a company interested in selling their services, but you can click on a my task link and then you're just free to use it. Um, at will for your own school but if you're getting started you want you want someone to hold your hand who's done it before you don't have to engage with any of the technical under the bonnet stuff you just need to be able to upload your students work get some judgments done and then it will spit out some scores for you so it, it's pretty simple but it's one of those first time you go through it you want someone holding your hand um, to, to do it but yeah the short answer is go to no more marking and 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 have a go and i'll tell you what like there's 
I, I can't speak for all listeners, but there are a few things more painful in life than moderation meetings in maths departments arguing yeah. over, is this a three mark? Is this a four mark? Oh God, it's painful. Whereas it's quite a fun thing to do, isn't it? You know, you sit down for 20 mm. minutes or whatever, you have two pieces of work, you just say that one's the best and then more come up. It's it's really, ex- I, I really enjoy it. Anytime I've done it, I find it, maybe it's just the novelty factor. And if I was doing it all the time, it'd be a bit annoying, but it's 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 far more fun than sitting through hours of moderation, I think. But maybe I'm just biased. On no, that. no, that's a common view and one I share. It's I mean I've done a million comparative judgments in my life, as you can imagine. And yeah, I do. <laughs> I find it quite engaging, much more so than than marking. Um, and that that can have benefits. I mean, I mentioned New Zealand and primary teachers' maths knowledge. Part of the reason they've got teachers judging is well, what you said. You recommend all teachers have a go at exa- uh, marking some GCSE papers likewise in new zealand they're saying to primary teachers look have a go at judging talk about the maths talk yes. about the maths you're seeing that's why it's very attractive to me as peer assessment uh, which i do a lot in my own modules and we, we've tried with schools again yeah it, it's engaging it makes you think about maths it makes you think about how others think of maths and i agree with that now, the other thing that really interests me about comparative judgment, you've mentioned it's good for assessing conceptual understanding. But my my instinct is also it can be quite good to help students. I don't know if develop conceptual understanding is the right word, but certainly get a sense of what good understanding looks like. Have, have you experience of using this with your students as, as a learning tool as opposed to an assessment tool? And if I wonder if you could just talk about that, please. Yeah, yeah. Um, So yeah, using it for peer assessment. So I I do this in my lectures. In particular, I teach uh, one of the foundation maths modules um, here at Loughborough University. So these are students uh, doing an extra year before they start their degree. And and for various reasons, they're needing to do do an extra year. So we cover content that's perhaps somewhere a bit between GCSE and A-level. So that's the kind of thing we're doing. So this is the group that gets the the first thing I do in the first lecture is just give them a piece of paper each with what is an equation, explain everything you know um, about um, equations. Some of these students are confident, they might even have an A-level in maths, others don't like maths, didn't expect to have to be doing it. Um, So you get a nice wide range of answers. Um, And I just tell them not to write their names on. I do believe in making peer assessment anonymous where where possible, it isn't always possible. And then about a week later, I book a computer lab and I say, remember that stuff you wrote? Now you're going to have a look at one another's answers. Um, So they do some judging. I encourage them to work in pairs, not necessarily two round one computer, but um, talking to each other and discussing the work. Then at the end, I'll um, have a whole group discussion and say, you know, what makes a good answer? What, What was it about answers you didn't like so much? And I'll often just on the screen show them the top two from their own judging. Keep it anonymous. I never show the bottom. Or um, uh, and then I'll repeat that again in a future lecture. I'll have um, another test that's quite similar. What is a matrix? Explain everything you know about matrices. Whatever it is we've been learning about. Again, book the lab. Again, get them discussing. And this is the point where I'll start to tell them: Look, part of your assessment at the end of the module is is one of these types of questions. And I say to them, your mark will be based solely on the quality of your written answer. But in order to get your answer, to get your mark released, you need to do some judging and you need to do it mm. honestly and sincerely. And there's various ways that you can check that. So they go through this maybe three or four times um, with different questions. 
And then, and, and, and yeah, you feel like you can see it developing over time, the, the answers getting richer, them having a better sense of what it means to communicate mathematics. So, so the typical answers they'll come up with are the things you'd want them to come up with. Well, I think the better examples are ones that give a, a concrete example or use multiple representations, a graph mm -hmm. as well as an equation, uh, or make connections between different areas of math. And, and they include other things that we've discussed that are not math but important you know if it's if it's well set out it's easy yes. to read and all these sorts of things so by the end what i do is i prepare about um six questions typically and i say on the test day i'm going to give you two of these questions but you don't know which two so what you want to do is have a perfect answer for all six that you can come and then bang out in the 15 minutes well it's 15 minutes per question test and I, by this time, I've given them free range. I don't use no more marking for this because we have university systems. So I've developed an app for comparative judgment within our within university systems that they do it on. But they have free range of this so they can try answers again, do as much judging. And it's really nice because when we have the revision sessions, you'll see two or three of them around a computer making judgments and making notes and discussing nice. it and really developing things. So that that's worked well for me. Um, and there's various other ways um, that I, I, I use it in my lectures, especially over the last year. I mean, I would normally in my lectures have sort of higher education equivalent of Malcolm Swan type cards and activities and get them all around doing these sorts of activities. Haven't been able to do that. So I've, I've made more use of comparative judgment to get them talking and sharing work, which has been quite nice. Now, what I can't say to you, oh yeah, and I've also researched this and here's the evidence that it's good mm. for learning. But I am just starting to work on that. So I've got a couple of grant applications in at the moment to enable me to do to do this. It will be a, a higher education level to start with. But you know, do you actually benefit? Do you do, do you get any sort of conceptual payoff from engaging with these things as a student? My anecdotal sense as a lecturer is, is quite a strong yes. But as we know from research, that doesn't always translate into, into hard evidence. Um, and, and there's always been a bit of a paradox in how I go about researching this, because if I'm arguing comparative judgment takes us to areas we can't reach with traditional methods, or if I do some intervention where I have my experimental group, comparative judgment, I have my control group, they do some other type of reading maths, and then I test them at the end, do I give them a comparative judgment test? <laughs> well, it's a bit, you know, it, the test looks like the experimental group. Or do I give them a traditional test? Well, the claim is that this there aren't. You know, so, yes. so it's taken me quite a lot of while to think that through and, and come together with a research design. But I hope I hope in a year or two to, to be able to, to be submitting some publications um, demonstrating uh, that comparative judgment does help with conceptual learning or not, as it, as it may turn out. That's fascinating. That. And again, I can only speak from working with younger students, but... I've, I've always found younger students find it really useful to be shown an example of a good answer and an answer that's not quite as good and to discuss the reasons why. But I've, I've only ever been able to do that just with kind of one or two examples in a whole class system, uh, just at, at the front on the board. But the ability to have kids sat there making, you know, several judgments themselves, 20 judgments, 30 judgments, and then having that discussion, I just think yeah. would be super, super useful. Far more useful than going through a mark scheme that I can't even understand myself, let alone, let yeah. alone the kids. 
Yeah, it's, it's it's one of those things where, you know, maybe it's cheating, but even if I found there was no strong learning advantage, it's such an engaging activity. You've got the students talking about the maths. I feel like mm. that in itself is a reward. I guess I'd actually have to find that it's bad for learning to stop me doing <laughs> it. You know? <laughs> it's what it isn't. That's great. Uh, was there anything else about comparative judgment that you wanted to, to talk about there, Ian, that we haven't covered? Yeah, I suppose it's, uh, a, a key feature of comparative judgment that we haven't got onto, and maybe because it's more to do with doing standards research, but not entirely, is that you don't have to compare like objects. So, for example, comparative judgment's used in quite a lot of standards research. We, we do some of this ourselves at Loughborough, but it's more kind of the operational research you might get some of the exam boards doing. So you have an exam paper from you know, 1996 or whatever it is on the left and an exam paper from the year 2000 or whatever it is on the right. And you ask examiners, which is the most difficult paper? Oh. And there, or, or that's been some of the more recent research look at difficulty or which student is the better mathematician. And even though it's a different exam paper asking different questions, you find that you do have an opinion on it and our results show it's reliable and, and valid and, and all of that. So this can be quite useful for um, direct assessment as well. I can have two different conceptual questions. I could have one kid, you know, what are, what's the differences and similarities between fractions and decimals on my left. Another one can be explain everything you know about Pythagoras or whatever it is. Is a world apart. I can still have an opinion on who is the best mathematician, and this can be uh, a very sort of useful scenario if you want to test across a lot of concepts. It's how we run the primary math study that we're doing in New Zealand, for example. So that offers um, possibilities as well. So I guess it's just worth mentioning that, and that's one thing that really opens up um, a lot of possibilities uh, with comparative judgment. Wow, that is potentially really powerful. That's that's fascinating. That that's yeah. fascinating. Um, I'm just wondering. I'm, I, there's one other part of your research that I, I really wanted just to touch upon. I'm, I'm conscious of time, but I wonder if we can just squeeze it in, Ian, and just perhaps give us a few little highlights on this. I know from um, our conversation offline, and also the notes Colin sent through, that you're interested in in the equal sign, and this mm. is something I'm I'm a little bit fascinated uh, about as well. So I wonder if you can just give us a few kind of little either headlines or just just a few things to think about there from your research if that's sort of yeah right. sure and i know iro talked about some of this when she was on the podcast recently including one of the studies that i worked on with her so what i'll talk about perhaps is some of my earlier stuff and my, my phd was focused on the equal sign um, and the contribution i hope that i made was made was to think about substitution so i mean I, i'm sure a lot of uh, listeners are familiar with the basics of the equal sign which is students seem seem to think, view it, or at least older primary and key stage three students in particular, seem to view it like it's an operational symbol, like it's plus or divide. It means do something. Yeah. It means write yes. the answer here rather than a, a, a relational symbol, meaning this side's the same as that side. Um, but in my PhD, I felt that what was neglected was the idea of substitution, that another meaning of the equal sign is wherever you see what's written on the left or the right, you can change it with what's written on the right or the left. Uh, this okay. idea of making substitutions using um, uh, using the equal sign, which I guess is familiar with algebra, whether it's just plug in the numbers, that can be a form of substitution. But it seemed to me that this was a very important aspect of um, the equal sign. And I guess another feature of this was I felt a lot of um, 
equal sign research was very much focused on these kind of contrived equations which illustrate commutivity or illustrate associativity. So yeah, A plus B equals B plus A. So, you know, giving arithmetic versions of that, 13 plus 6 equals 6 plus 13, seeing if students could agree with it or not without having to do the calculation. I thought, well, that's all well and good, but in some ways it's not inherent to the definition of equivalence. So the, the definition of mathematical quality is, is that it's transient, so that's A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C, that it's symmetric, A equals B, therefore B equals A, and the one that's all a bit philosophical and slight to me reflexive that a equals a uh, <laughs> it's, it's things like that where you've got a physics degree you think yeah i don't really understand all the maths but, but anyway these sort of in you know that is the definition of, of an equivalence relationship in mathematics and it seemed that that's not quite commutivity yeah you'd need equivalence to know that six plus 13 is the same as 13 plus six but that sort of fiddling around i guess the definition of, of the equal sign with the transitivity and symmetry and reflexivity as well there's a black box element it's all about you know if a equals b and b equals c then a equals c uh, whereas the equal sign research a lot of it actually unpacks what's inside a a is six plus 13 whereas b is is 13 plus six. And it kind of missing the idea that actually, in a way, it doesn't matter what the thing is on each side of the equal sign. The point is it's transitive that we can substitute it. So I designed a, a piece of software. And again, we're preempting one of my uh, big three uh, websites. I'm gonna offer this as a suggestion if any of you listeners want to look into it. A website that, that wasn't algebra, uh, sorry, a, a, a piece of software that wasn't algebra, it was arithmetic and yet made use of substitution so the idea was I mean it was in the sort of spirit of, of micro worlds and constructionism the idea that students sort of dive into this world and and manipulate these equations so it presents a, a set of equations and a target but you have to use the equations to make substitutions um, to get there rather than diving into the well, it does use commutivity and stuff as well, but rather than diving into this sort of idea of, of commutivity and associativity and these rather, dare I say, contrived equations we often present with students in order to try and encourage equivalence. Nothing wrong with that, and I recommend doing it, and my project with Eero did that as well. But I wanted to uh, um, bring this substitution idea in. So I kind of developed it out of thinking about the mathematical meaning of equivalence and uh, having students work in the micro world, and then went on to establish it as a, uh, an existing psychological construct alongside and different separate to sameness, as, as we ended up calling it. I get, I get a bit muddled with my language because calling it a relational meaning of the equal sign or substitution part of that as well. And then um, I did some work with Eero uh, that I think she didn't mention, where we looked at whether having a concept of substitution or the, the strength of of how how um, strongly a student happy to identify substitution as part of equivalence does that affect their performance uh, with um, algebra? And we did find a relationship for secondary students, although not for engineering students at, at university. So yeah, it's introducing this idea of substitution has, has been something I've done, and then more recently looking at the relationship between teacher knowledge and textbooks and students understanding of equivalence. But that is available in the in the podcast with Eero, I believe. Fantastic, superb. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. Just uh, the more 
the more you teach, the more you have to think hard about things that you've never thought hard about before, mm. and the more you realize the complexities. And you're absolutely right. That equals sign triggers in many kids. You fill in the gap, and it's only when you mm. start thinking hard about what that equal sign means that you realize, yeah, actually, you've got to be a bit more careful with your notation as a maths teacher and a bit more careful with, yeah, how you're communicating things to students. That's fascinating, Maddie, and thank you for that. Um, well, we'll move on, if it's okay, to two reflection questions, if that's all right. So my first yeah. is, uh, what's an example of something important that you've changed your mind about? Well, I hope I'm not going to be too cynical uh, with this answer. But I mean, I sometimes say, you know, people who work in pie factories never eat pies. And <laughs> the more I work in assessment, um, including with comparative judgment, the more uncomfortable I get about the idea of assessing students, which I guess I mean in um, a couple of ways. One is that I mean, nine letter grades now for GCSE, it's not a meaningful number of, of divisions. And I do wonder if it is meaningful to divide people into categories, more than say three categories when it comes mm -hmm. to some, you know, some rather wobbly constructs like mathematical knowledge. You know, this isn't height, it isn't, it isn't uh, something that we can objectively put in order. You know, the reliability of measuring height is very, very good compared to mathematical knowledge. So, you know, I do wonder about how many grades we assign to students. And I increasingly in my uh, university teaching, as much as I can get away with, I, I find myself trying to reduce these sort of bands a little bit. For example, earlier when I said, uh, when we were talking about how do you apply grades to comparative judgment scores, and I said, but I would never, you know, just simplistically use where my exemplar scripts come out, I yes. would then have a look because it's not that meaningful within sort of five or six students. Uh, so, so that's left me sort of um, wondering about things. And, you know, you do wonder about the world we live in where some students don't get their GCSE. Okay, it doesn't matter so much. But, you know, this idea of failure and, and this idea of assessing uh, people in order to kind of rubber stamp them with an ability, it, it's, yeah, I get a little bit disillusioned if that's not too cynical. Uh, <laughs> Cynical an answer, but I do think it's important never to, or for us all to remember, not to buy in too much into the sort of data we're getting, and to remember always to, you know, step back and and think about the limitations of assessment and, and qualifications. Fantastic, good answer. And final question from me: uh, What areas do you think are most overlooked in mathematics research that need more attention? Yeah, this is a great question because, of course, there's far more ideas. Um, than there is time and research funding and, and hours in the day. So, I mean, there's, there's just sort of a, a where to begin thing. I'm going to answer with uh, something that affects my research and inhibits my comparative judgment research. And that is the lack of measures of conceptual understanding. This has hit me a couple of times recently where um, I've done a study where we're interested in can comparative judgment assessed conceptual understanding of, of algebra was one of them or, or letters in simple algebra to be specific or conceptual understanding of derivatives. So, and what, what we did was, in fact, we researched those areas because there's hardly any instruments to measure conceptual understanding, but there is one for algebra and there is one for calculus. And we took the, deriv the differentiation out of no, derivative items out of that. But it turned out when we applied these tests, these 
standard supposedly validated measures from the literature, they fell over. Their internal consistency, we call it, was was nothing and that or was too low. And that suggests you are not making a meaningful measure of, of anything. And it's a bit of a paradox in a way, the fact that there's a lack of conceptual measures is is what gives my comparative judgment research wings. You know, it's a gap for me to 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 venture forth with. But how do I validate my comparative judgment measures if there's no yardsticks out there? Mm. And even though I think I've now offered something to the research community, comparative judgment as a research tool for addressing this, as with all assessment, we want a rich diet. You don't just assess someone in one way for something as rich as mathematical knowledge. So it is a frustration of mine that there's very few uh, conceptual understanding instruments out there that, that stand up. In fact, the equal sign is a great exception. There's a lot of very good instruments on the equal sign that um, you can translate, you can administer in other countries and they hold up. So yeah, more work on conceptual understanding. And I do have a, a student, a PhD student at Loughborough, Hannah Davey, who I'm supervising along with Camilla and Matthew, who's been on the show, who's doing a big systematic review into this and, and looking at um, uh, methods of measuring conceptual understanding. But yeah, that for me would uh, really help the discipline a great deal. Fantastic, fantastic. Right, well, it's over to you now, uh, Ian, for your big three. So you've teased a couple of these earlier on, but let, let's have, let's have your big three. What are you going for? Yeah, so I am going to start off with nomoremarking.com. So we've been talking about comparative judgment, and I, I would say that that is the go-to tool uh, for any listeners wanting to have a go um, with comparative judgment. I do recommend you get in touch with myself. Um, there's also Pat Barnby at No More Marking, who's very keen on, who's, who's got the maths education background that I mentioned earlier. So yeah, I'd encourage uh, any, any teachers who are interested to have a go. Uh, for my second one, I mentioned that I made a micro world based on substitution equations. Now that software was on a rather archaic platform. I haven't got a copy of it anymore, but I do have something. Uh, 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 it's a bit stripped down, but some people might find it interesting. So I've, I've made a tiny URL for this because it's a bit of a, a funny website made by a computer scientist for me. But it's tinyurl.com forward slash sum puzzles, S-U-M, sum puzzles. Got it. Um, yeah, so there you can have a look at the sort of thing that um, I was meaning where students can have a go at, at using arithmetic statements as, as substitutions. And then my final one is uh, there's a, an assessment system. I don't know if you've come across it. It's really mainly only used in higher education maths called STAC. I can't remember what it stands for now. It was no. invented by the, the brilliant uh, Chris Sanguin at um, University of Edinburgh. A good friend, but also a traitor because he was formerly at Loughborough and he left <laughs> to go to Edinburgh. Uh, anyone could want to go to Edinburgh rather than Loughborough. <laughs> Uh, and that if if yeah it's it's a very uh, nice system i mean universities generally when we have our online tests we're moving from multiple choice questions through to um where you input your maths notation and text i mean this is a big problem with assessing maths but mm -hmm. how do you enter your notation i always think it's a bit of an irony that the art subjects lend themselves to digital input essays and e-portfolios and science technology the STEM subjects don't. The STEM subjects yes. very much anticipate. So STAC is an attempt to address that. And it's a wonderful system because you type your answer in and then that's sent to an algebra, algebra system that analyzes the response and gives students feedback. So you can personalize feedback. You can watch for common misconceptions and you can give students 
um, sort of positive feedback so they don't make mistakes just based on simple slips. So that is stack-assessment.org, stack-assessment.org. It's a bit of a pain to use if you are in a school because it assumes you have the kind of VLE that we have in universities. However, Chris Sanguin also had, you know, if you get in touch uh, through the website, there are servers people can get access to to, to use it. So I think that's a, a great resource. It's something I, I work on um, quite a bit at, at Loughborough, our stack assessment. So yeah, very different to anything I've talked about, almost the opposite of, of comparative judgment, all about... <laughs> all about automating the assessment of procedures, uh, but doing it very well, in my opinion. Well, that is absolutely fascinating. Three excellent big threes and just an excellent conversation, that Ian. I really enjoyed it and I learned loads there. As I say, it's it's answered the big question for me. I was sold on the dream of comparative judgment, but you've helped me understand that more, much more, in fact. But also, I now can see how it can be used both to assess conceptual understanding and also possibly more interesting to help students understand things more by showing them these good answers and not so good answers and so on. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that. So, Ian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. So there you have it. There was my conversation with the fantastic Ian Jones. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. I know I say this all the time, but I absolutely loved speaking to speaking to Ian. These guests on this research in action are, are absolutely fantastic. They're, they're so passionate about their area of interest, and I absolutely love that when somebody's so interested in something and it really comes through, I think, in, in the conversation. I also absolutely love this conversation because it's been something I've been meaning to get to the bottom of and dig a bit deeper into uh, for some time now. So uh, regular listeners of the show, long-time listeners, will remember when Daisy Christodoulou first came on the show many years ago and we spoke about comparative judgment because Daisy had recently at that time joined No More Marking. In fact, it was almost a bit of a world exclusive for the podcast when she announced it on there. And I absolutely love the idea of, of comparative judgment, which, of course, no more marking is, is heavily involved in. But I could only ever see it through um, a non-math lens, in particular for its use in um, assessing students' uh, ability to write essays or, or longer form answers and so on and so forth. And I've been on a few um, comparative judgment workshops run by Daisy over the years, and I think it's absolutely fantastic for that kind of thing. But I could never see its application for, for, for mathematics. And I spoke to Daisy on that podcast many years ago um, about this. And Daisy suggested some ideas, but but again, I, I couldn't quite see it. I thought, okay, you can imagine a bit of a kind of a niche way of using it every now and again, bit of fun, bit of variety. But in terms of a regular tool of, of mathematics assessment um, within a, a department, I, I couldn't quite see it, see it working. But now having spoken to Ian, I'm so excited about this. I think there's real potential um, for this, you know. So um, I'm recording this podcast in July 2021 at the end of an absolute, well, towards the end of an absolute shocker of an academic year. And I know everybody's absolutely knackered. And the last thing perhaps you want to do is start thinking about the new academic year in September. And (laughs) September will be here before we know it. So forget, if if you don't want to think about September, just stop me now here. Just, Just forget this. And perhaps return to it when uh, when next year is a bit more uh, in at the forefront of your mind but I'm thinking that, that September could be a fantastic time just to start perhaps bringing this into into your uh, your your individual teacher routine or your departmental 
routine. Because as Ian said, the, uh, the tool on No More Marking is completely free. So there's no cost um, associated to this in terms of money. I also don't think there's much of a time cost associated to this. Now, I'm speaking as somebody who's quite slow to pick up on, on many things and get their head around it. And I managed to get my head around this free tool. It's dead, dead simple. Um, and if you uh, if you, you, you managed to get your head around it, which there's no doubt you will do, you can kind of do this on behalf of um, other other teachers in, in your department. You could kind of take the lead of, of, of inputting the work in there and so on and so forth. That's the only tricky bit, just getting the work in there. What Once once people are doing the, the comparisons, it, it, it's dead dead simple and, and dead fun as i explained so um with september coming around perhaps a good uh, good way to use this might be almost as one of those first lessons with with your year sevens uh, you could you i always think it's important that year seven feels different to, to, to year six there's definitely importance in a kind of continuity between um, primary and secondary math. You don't want it to be such a jolt that the kids are like, what the hell's going on here? Because we know that there's loads of other things going on in transition as well. But at the same time, I've made the mistake in the past that the first kind of few weeks of, of year seven have been number work. Uh, and it's the same number work that the kids have been doing for about four or five years at, at primary school. So I'm introducing percentages as if it's going to be like going to absolutely blow the mind. And I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, we've done this for four years, sir. So perhaps a nice way to kind of kickstart a year seven's mathematical journey, a secondary, a secondary mathematical journey, might be to set them some kind of task like Ian was talking about. So um, what, does, what does maths mean to you? Or what does addition mean? Or what, is a what does a fraction mean to you? These kind of so-called open-ended questions that in the past I would have perhaps been a little wary to use because whilst it's interesting for the students to answer, it's very hard for me to, to get a sense of their understanding in any, any meaningful structured way from the wide variety of responses that would come in. But now we've got that tool, right? So um, the students could, could answer questions like this with the complete freedom to, to answer them any way they like. And then we can just feed them into the, into the No More Marking tool. And then we've got a way of, um, of, of comparing students, not again to give them any level or grade or anything like that but just with a ranking of their responses which may then prove informative and um, going forward when we had uh, to get a real good sense of their understanding again for me it just imposes some form of of structure and and a way of way of looking at work that previously i, I would have struggled with and then we've got potential again uh, going through going throughout the year in, in departmental meetings this could be an exercise that gets brought in it could be perhaps once a term we could do something like this. I, I think, I don't know if I've spoke about this um, on, on the podcast uh, before, and f forgive me if you've heard me bang on about this um, <laughs> in, in the past, but whenever my colleague and I wrote our scheme of work, year seven and eight scheme of work, many, many years ago um, at Thornley in Bolton, one of the things I really wanted in there were, were these kind of more open-ended, kind of almost mini project style questions that um, that would just be really interesting for the students, allow them to be creative and so on. And, and we don't, we, one of the questions that springs to mind around about Christmas is we had something like, how many times could you sing Jingle Bells in a day? And it was one of those questions where students could, could approach it in lots of different ways. And I, I remember it in my class, I had, I had one girl who'd really gone to town with this. She'd, um, she'd not just done the, the kind of so-called simple thing and, and figured out the length of time that Jingle Bells last to sing and then kind of divided 
24 hours into that and so on. She'd factored in drinks breaks. She'd factored in food breaks. She'd factored in like waking up in the middle of the night to bang out a few verses. But also what she'd figured out was that if she had a toilet break, she could still probably get away with singing Jingle Bells on the toilet and so on. And there was all, anyway, too much, too much information. But there's all kinds of graphs going on and different data representation and calculations and so on. And it's absolutely wonderful. And I remember what we tried to do as a department so we had like a mark scheme going on um, and you and there was you had to give it like a creativity mark, a mathematical accuracy mark, a presentation mark, almost kind of like the old coursework marking that, that you used to do. And, it, and it, it, I never really liked that. That was the least fun part of it because it, it really reduced it to kind of a, a single mark. But worse than that, um, it was so hard to get consistency. And as anyone who's marked coursework uh, in the past will, will know, the moderation part is, is boring and flipping painful. And it was all kicking off with arguments and so on. And what we, we, we this was back in the day when we were obsessed with uh, collecting as much data as possible. So whenever teachers were inputting their marks for these creative tasks um, onto our Excel tracking spreadsheet, there was so much kind of uh, spread in the marks and um, between classes that it just became became ridiculous. Whereas looking back now, those kind of questions, because the kids loved them, the kids loved the questions, the parents loved them, they produced some absolutely fantastic work. I think they're absolutely perfect for, for plugging into um, this the comparative judgment tool. Because the other option is you just don't mark them at all, but then that's again whether it's right or wrong that's part of the incentive for kids to do a good job the, the fact that the teacher is going to be looking at them and putting some effort into into assessing them and, and so on and so forth so I think questions and so in the end by the way we just scrapped those questions because it was just becoming too much of a hassle once we kind of collected them in knowing what to do with them but the more I think about it now, the more I think comparative judgment could provide a real solution to that. So um, I'm going to shut up now. You'll be pleased to know, but I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, have a look at the tool, have a play around with it, and then just think, is there anything currently that exists in your scheme of work that could make use of this? And that, if so, fantastic. But if not, could you bring in some of these tasks, some of these mo more open-ended tasks that perhaps you've shied away from in the past for the reasons that, that I've, I've, I've discussed with, with some of the things that we did? Could you bring them in now and perhaps use them um, with this tool? And my advice with anything is get your head around it first yourself uh, so you know what you're doing. Then bring one colleague uh, uh, on board as well. So perhaps pick a colleague and you both try it out with your classes and then go to the department when there's two of you who are happy with how it worked, you've ironed out any major problems and so on. That That's, for me, always the best way to, to, to bring a new idea to the masses, so to speak. Nail it yourself first, then get a colleague on board, then bring it to, to, to everybody else. And I, honestly, it's so exciting. Those those departmental sessions when you're using the tool, people look forward to them because it, it's it's absolutely fascinating and it's it's great how it how it all how it all comes out. Anyway, as I say, I'll shut up now. So I'll be I'll be interested to know if, if you if you decide to take that forward. And I'm sure um, Ian would be happy if you were to kind of let him know. Um, how it went and also Daisy Daisy as well so uh, you can just tag no more marking on Twitter and uh, and take it from there so uh, all that remains for me to do is thank Ian for being an absolutely fantastic guest uh, thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music you've heard throughout the show massive thank you to to Arc Maths I often forget to thank them in the takeaways which is really really bad of me but they're the main reason that uh, them and uh, 
providing the financial support for this and Colin Foster for providing the organisational support. Without those two bodies, uh, then this, this wouldn't be happening, this Research in Action series. So thank you to them. And thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for tuning in. Only one more of these to go. Can you believe it? But I tell you what, the end of season finale, we're going out on a high with the fantastic Tom Frankham and we're digging deep into mixed attainment. And if you're listening to this at the start of July when I'm recording it, and you're you're on Twitter. You'll know it's all been kicking off once again about mixed attainment. So let's let's crack open that can of worms one more time, and see what happens. Anyway, I'll shut up for now. Thanks so much for listening. You take care, and bye for now. <laughs>